I'm Erica. I'm Jesse. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Erica, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I am Erica. I'm an ecologist. I am recently a Texan. I have nothing to plug today, sadly. You're not going to plug Texas? You're not going to plug moving to Texas? Oh, boy, no. (laughs) (laughs) You know... Um, you know how broken we think of Puerto Rico as like Puerto Rico always has these like tragedies and loses water and loses electricity and hurricane season comes every year and stuff. Uh, last summer I went to Puerto Rico and it was amazing compared to Texas. Like I would move there in a heartbeat. So I'm going to plug Puerto Rico. It's amazing. Don't they not pay federal taxes there or something like that? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's a a thing. They definitely don't get to vote. Right. But they do get like, they do get like road building and infrastructure things. So I assume that they pay taxes for that. They've got the Army Corps of Engineers, but they just come in and kick ass. (laughs) Uh, And and Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? No and no. Are we ready to start? Oh, yes. What? What? Huh? Would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, I so I've, I'm um, I'm Jim. I'm a, a game designer and a father of a four year old child. I would like to plug getting a small laptop to run Pico Eight on. Oh, cool! Uh, this is something that I, I've done recently. Like I, I've talked on a prior episode about being jealous of my wife's ability to just pull out her embroidery anywhere and just work on it while in a social situation. And I ended up on a whim just getting a cheap, like $100 laptop that's barely good enough to run the software that I wanted to run. And I expected this to not work out because there's also, it's not just, it's, it's not just not having the equipment. It's also like the kind of work that I do for game development is different from the kind of work that embroidery is. Embroidery is like very like you're making rep- repetitive motions and you're only like thinking every so often. Mm. Whereas the kind of work I do requires like a fair amount of attention. And like, it, it may be that if I try to do this in social situations, like I'll just start ignoring the room and everybody will be annoyed. But to my surprise, I have been productive on this thing. And I started another project, another small game development project. And I'm very excited about that. So yeah, if you're worried that you're like, your method of working is going to shut out the world and make everybody hate you. Just fuck them. Just get a laptop <laughs> and and work on things you think are cool. God, I hope my dad is not listening to this podcast because he brings his laptop to the dinner table and we're like, put that thing away. Oh, yeah. We're trying to have a conversation. That, that, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, I do that too, but I don't open it. He does he does it actually he's not working on anything. He's fact checking the conversation that we're having, which is like the height of annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't imagine something more. Well, going okay. How about I this is something that I do fairly often in a conversation, for example, with my wife, is we will be wondering aloud about something mm-hmm. and then I'll just pull out my phone and start looking it up. Okay. Are you both wondering aloud aloud about it? Are you both looking for an answer? Um well, sometimes. Are you a senior scientist who's assessing the veracity of something that a younger female scientist is saying at the dinner table? Well, my wife is younger than me. Okay. But that's so. the only part of that um, 
that's the only part of that comparison that holds up. I'm going to say that your your interaction with your wife is probably deemed normal, and this thing that my father likes to do is probably not. Okay, but is normal, <laughs> does that make it acceptable? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's okay. I mean, I, I think... Like, I think if she doesn't like it, you'll talk about it and you'll get through it together. You make some decisions together Oh, yeah, together we've, we've done that it. a couple yeah. times. <laughs> That's what a relationship is. That's right. <laughs> Are we ready to start on some topics? Sure. Yes. Jesse, your topic is, there's a Spanish word which officially cannot be written because the grammar and orthography conflict about how it should be spelled slash pronounced. Uh, yeah, that's that's the case. So explain to me what orthography is, because I don't have like a technical understanding of it. Yeah, so that, that comes from uh, the roots ortho, meaning not fucked, and graphy, meaning <laughs> writing. So when you write something correctly, that is to say you spell it correctly, then you are following not fucked writing or orthography. So those are the rules that tell you, uh, you know, how things are supposed to be spelled. Okay, that makes sense to me. I don't speak Spanish, by the way, so uh, I can only explain this so well, but there's some verb where there's a specific form of this verb that the grammar tells you has to be spelled S-A-L-L-E. But the orthography rules in Spanish say that no matter what, when you encounter two L's in a row, those make the weird Spanish double L-Y sound, okay. and they don't make an L sound. But the grammar requires this to be an L sound. What does the what does the word mean? Does it mean room or something? The verb that you begin with is salir. Oh, verb. Okay. Yeah. S S A L I R. And there's a a certain imperative form that you form by attaching the pronoun le L E, and then that should delete the I R so that you get S A L L E left over. But this puts two L's in a row, which causes a problem for the spelling rules, because the spelling rules tell you that this is actually a different word with the y sound instead of a l sound. What does it what does it mean though? Uh I used to know this and I can't find a good source on this. Uh let's see. Like like how commonly do people run into this situation and do they just like do they just thumb their noses at each other and make like a noise when they get to that? Yeah, I'm not sure. So the, How do they handle it in conversation? The, the verb that you start with means to leave or to go out. Okay, okay. Um, so this is like a, it's like an informal uh, imperative version of, of leave, oh. but... Um, so, so you're telling me that that basically, like the COVID nineteen pandemic solved this because ne- nobody ever needed to go out again. Right, and it's rude to tell people to do it. Uh, <laughs> so, like like many European languages, other than English, Spanish has like a group of people whose job is to write the spec for what Spanish is. And people have asked them about this before, and I believe their their sort of ruling on the matter is that it is acceptable to say this word, but it cannot be written. Wow. Um, this is very serious. Uh, I, I don't know. I actually don't know what the solution for this would be, except like maybe to try and bribe those guys. Does that seem like a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess... seem like a thing that could happen in Spain, is that like the government could be bribed. <laughs> you could, I suppose, introduce a new accent or something, like just put a weird accent across both of the L's to show that this is not LL, this is just two L's. Yeah, right. I'm just happy that 
finally we found a way that spelling in English is more sensible than spelling in Spanish. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> there are no rules in English. So, yeah. Yeah. We don't have to worry about designing the rules of English, you know, so that there are no strange, undefined behaviors or contradictions because there are no rules and you can do whatever you want. Everything's a strange and un undefined contradiction. Exactly. There's like a linguistics movement. I don't know who's like on each side of this uh, or who developed these ideas, but uh, the idea that uh, meaning sort of like uh, comes from the way that people use things and that the uh, grammar uh, that people use like reflects how they mean things rather than being a prescribed um, a prescribed right. thing. It, it sounds like it didn't that um, that form of linguistic philosophy like never made it to Spain. But that surprises me because what I'm talking about sounds very French to me. <laughs> like it sounds like a very a set of very like European and French ideas. That's that's true. Yes, I, it it is interesting because of course like Spanish is extremely widely spoken and and has a lot of diversity and variety because it's spoken in so widely in different places but nevertheless there's still some organization that that publishes some book that tells you what like official correct spanish is and that's true of, i think most european languages english sort of stands mm -hmm. out in the fact that we don't have that huh interesting my understanding yeah, too is especially to french people like it's really important like french people only want to speak correct french and they only want to hear others speak correct french and they will sort of do anything to avoid <laughs> speaking or hearing incorrect <laughs> French. When I was in my 20s, I, I was hanging out with a woman who's in her 50s. And she had um, spent a lot of time in Germany with her family. She had raised kids in Germany. She herself wasn't German. But uh, she talked about she talked about living in Europe, and how, uh, like Berlin, was divided up and how um, the communist countries uh, had been sort of like partitioned. Um, and what it really came down to was like people were like confrontational over these areas that were countries that were basically the size of Maine and New Hampshire and Connecticut. So if you could imagine like people with different languages and different cultures and different backgrounds, like all living basically in the states that we were living in, which are small, uh, then you get an idea of like why um, why it's so important to like maintain linguistic integrity, right? Because like, you know, these, these, these areas are small and the people interact and like you could lose your culture in a heartbeat, really. Yeah. I, I hadn't put a lot of stock into um, that kind of attitude of like um, prescription for languages. Um, this is sort of where the... The attitude of Quebec comes from, right? Quebec is a province which is surrounded on all sides by English, right. but it is it is majority French speaking, and and they are willing to uh, use a, a sort of considerable and and I think to many people shocking degree of of sort of government power to enforce the use of French in Quebec. Yeah, but Quebecers are insane. Like not the per not the individual Quebecers, but like the the government leaders who go and and platform for prime minister. Like the things that they say are shocking. <laughs> the, uh, Quebec is yeah. Quebec is a. I mean, if you have to be careful what you say about Quebec as an Anglo Canadian, but uh, <laughs> it is a remark. It, you know, it is it is 
it is less like the rest of Canada than any part of the United States is like any other part of the United States. I, oh, I, I don't think, know. Have you been to Texas? <laughs> well, I, I, we, we have we have a Texas. Our Texas is called Alberta. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, it, it is really different. Like the culture and, and politics and so on of Quebec are very different from everywhere else. And so it's hard to sort of like, it's hard to make any comparisons or something. It's just sort of a different thing. All right. Well, I live on the border with Mexico and ah. many of my students are of Mexican extraction. So I'm going to report back next time I'm on Topic Lords about how they pronounce this word, because I don't think uh, in Mexico they care about the book that's being written in Spain about how they should speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to get them also to spell it. That's apparently the problem. Oh, get, okay, get them to okay. write it down as they say it and we'll, and we'll see what happens. Okay. Okay. I'm going to do it. <laughs> With my memory the way it is these days, though, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to them and I'm gonna say like, oh, uh, do you know the composer Salieri? <laughs> can, can you spell his name? But I'll if, I'll come back with something. If you record them, we could get a paper out of this. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I like this thinking. I like this line of thinking. A good relaxing podcast that uh, leads to uh, substantial academic progress. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're willing to handle the peer review, that's all I have to say about that. I still don't have an Erdos number, and that's really all I want in life. Okay, well, if you want to be on a paper with me, your Erdos number will be five. Nice. Yeah. It's got, it's got to be a math paper, though. I think uh, a linguistics paper about how Spanish-speaking undergraduate students pronounce and write a certain word <laughs> isn't going to do it. You don't think that counts? <laughs> I think the traditional understanding is that you have to write a math paper to get an Irish number of it. I guess that's that's gatekeeping. That's not okay. You know, it's it's up for some interpret interpretation about what uh, what a math paper is. I guess. Well, I mean the the thing is that you know Erdosh he lived a long time ago. The numbers are just going up now. Uh, what you should have is a storm dancer number where you're storm dancer zero. And everybody who builds a video game with you can have the Storm Dancer number of one. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, just start over. <laughs> <laughs> when you make your own thing, people pay more attention than if you're trying to, like, hook into something that somebody else has done. You don't need an Erdos number. You're Storm Dancer zero. Your online number is the minimum Erdos number among people with whom you have fallen in love. So you could try minimizing that instead. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have to be reciprocated? Uh, if it does, then that bodes poorly for my online number. Let's say that. <laughs> so now we need to have the discussion of like, for the Storm Dancer number, do you count beta testers? Because there are so many of those. No, 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 definitely okay. not. They're, they're trash. You don't need beta testers. <laughs> no, no, they're no, not real devs. It has not to be like devs. the first, the first like five <laughs> names that appear in the credits. <laughs> right. So all, all Jim Storm Dancer in my case. Wow, that there you go. I mean, the the whole point of this thing is to is to encourage collaboration. So apparently, you're you're working in too insular a fashion if all five names are you. Oh, I I don't know. I mean, like the 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 reason why things are are uh, sought after to begin with is because they're rare. I say keep doing it. <laughs> are you ready for another topic? Sure. Yes, Erica. Your topic is my personal relationship with Disco Elysium. Yeah. I don't really have one. I, um, what is I wanted this? To... 
<laughs> I wanted to talk about something specific that I got out of Disco Elysium. I don't have like um, I've never played it. I've watched playthroughs of it. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so if that counts, if that gives me a Disco Elysium number, <laughs> I mean, I can, it, I can talk about it. It certainly would allow you to have a, an opinion about it. <laughs> um, so I. Has Disco Elysium come up in a big way on this show before? If it has, I've missed it. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know why. It's like a really, like, people love this game, right? Yeah. Why? Can you describe the game? I don't play video games, so you have to tell me what this is. Oh, do you want to describe it, Jim? Uh, Imagine, like, Secret of Monkey Island, except with a bunch of, like, D&D stat checks. Okay. so it's more than that. It's got, it's got like, <laughs> also there's a lot of communism. Um, there, there, there is a lot of communism. Oh, is this got, is this the one where people post screenshots about being a policeman from the state to come? Yeah, uh-huh, yes. that's the one. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. I know what this thing is. You play a guy who whose name maybe is Harry, and your partner is Kim Katsuragi, and the world is like well, first of all, the art is outstanding like the um beautiful they look like hand-painted scenes um uh just gorgeous color palette and then the world itself is like uh i think they have made a D game out of it it's it's really got like huge depth to it uh both like in in terms of time uh like the development of all of the 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 civilization and all of the countries and there's like um there are elements to it that are very strange like at some point somebody explains to you that this is this world is probably flat and that um the continents are actually not connected to one another but they float in a kind of like mist and the mist may be like growing but basically like the the gameplay is about solving a murder and like um trying to understand uh, people's racial alignments and their political alignments and whether or not they're part of uh, some kind of like local mafia and so on. But I think that the writing is what it's known for. Some of the character customization is really strange. Like you can choose to play as a racist, but I think it has no consequences for you. Um, except like your partner, Kim Katsuragi could leave at some point, but there, there are really like kind of no, no real consequences to the customization as far as I can tell, except that it, it can lock you out of, uh, uh, certain areas for a long time if you don't pass the stat checks. Is that, is that kind of a description that you would go with, Jim? Yeah. So I, 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 when I was saying it was like Monkey Island, I was coming at it from the perspective of like, this is basically an adventure game in that you are poking around the world and having lots of dialogue trees, but it is much more like from the perspective, like it's coming from the world of like the Baldur's Gate oeuvre of D&D derived games, except then they remove the combat. There's no, as far as I could tell, there was no combat engine in the game. It's just um, all the other stuff. Uh, and the other stuff is like really deeply implemented conversation trees, like to a actually kind of a like a bizarre like why 
like the, like the amount of work that would have been involved in writing all the all the all the combinations of things that can happen. Like it must have been somebody's full time gig for years. Yeah. Yeah. And it does it definitely does weird things with game mecha- game mechanically in terms of like I don't remember if this is a literal thing that happens but I believe that for example your stats talk to you. Yes, that's correct. That that is a thing that happens. Okay, so yeah. like you'll get to a a point in a conversation and like one of your like your your charisma stat will just interject something. That's right. And that that might give you like an additional dialogue option, for example, or just or just information about the conversation. Uh, and another thing you can do is like you can equip ideas like equipment, and then the ideas level up and like kind of metastasize in your mind, and then those ideas also interject like thoughts into the conversation. That's right. So there's like a thought cabinet that's called the thought cabinet, and. Like, as far as I can tell, so this is why I want other people to talk about this is because like, um, like, it's a very beautiful game. It's very intellectual. It's very thinky. It, it understands itself very well. But like, I, I feel like the story is really good. And there's almost like no reason to have stats. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, um, the thing that I wanted to talk about was, um, the um the city of Revachal. Uh-huh. So um basically like Revachal is um uh, it's like the broader city where the game takes place. And so the east side of Revachal is basically like where the rich people live and um the capitalists live. Um and like the west side of Revachal is the um it's like the where the resource extraction happens and um it's it's like full of um like desperately poor people and people who are addicted to drugs and there's all kinds of crime going on and um there's a point in the game uh because like you wake up you're an alcoholic and you've lost your memory and you're trying to put together your life again you can you can call a doctor and the doctor's like, oh, you lost your memory because you're a drunk. And you're like, well, yeah, but I, I don't remember who I am at all. And I think it's the doctor who says, like, go just just go have, like, a rich person explain to you what's going on here. <laughs> so, so you go to find this woman. Uh, she's very rich and she lives on a sailboat. I forget what her name is. Um, but she basically tells you that... Um, Yes, this is the way things are. Um, the east side, uh, is like where, uh, the rich people live and they send cops over to the resource extraction area. And, um, the cops are there basically to just, uh, make sure that the resources get extracted and that the poor people don't complain too much and that they don't, um, they don't make a fuss about having like livable lives. And, um, something clicked for me about that because like there's such like an eastern european perspective here about uh about like these systems of government and like what they're for and what they're meant to do uh but this person just tells you that that's what it is and i like i'm living in the permian basin where like the whole reason why this city complex exists is to extract oil from the ground and we live in Midland where like all of the execs live because the air is like more breathable and we have trees. 
and over in Odessa is like where all of the the oil workers live and work and it's dirty and dangerous and it has the highest violent crimes rate in Texas. Like this is exactly what's going on here. And it, it was just such a, a a moment of like clarity for me that this is what happens in the rest of the world also. Like this is probably what's going on with like um, mountaintop mining in West Virginia and like fracking in North Dakota and like even like all of the mining things in Africa. There's probably like a town of people who are like the the wealthier people who are like enforcing the resource extraction world on the poorer people. And I just, I thought, like, I think that the game, like, Disco Elysium, I think as a game, it kind of stinks. <laughs> but as, like, a perspective, like, it's amazing. Like, they, they caught so much of, like, of these, like, um, you know, socialism and communism and capitalism and the way the, the way that they interact. And I don't know that there was like a better medium for uh, getting those ideas across. You know, do you need a, do you need like a thought cabinet? Do you need like D and D checks to get through this world? Like, I think that's only there to like keep you engaged. But um, I I don't know. I I thought there was so much in there that was so good, and I don't know. I don't know why other people like the game because it's certainly not for the things that I'm saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think a lot in a lot of cases it is. I think a lot of the audience of this game is there are are people who who care a lot about this sort of politic politicking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they and they're really happy to see it represented in a in a in a good game. Yeah, there's no other there's no other game I think that takes on any of these issues at all, and this is like a really nice treatment. Yeah. Of, of them. But yeah, I, I tend to agree that like the, the game is like I, – I was talking about like the thought cabinet and the the stats that speak to you in a good way. And I do think they're interesting yeah. from a game design standpoint. But like mm-hmm. when I played this game, I played like for five hours and I was just like – I'm just lost. And I, I mean both <laughs> like in terms of like I don't know how to proceed in the game. And also I just don't know what's going on mechanically. It's too complicated. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is exactly how you interact with like games like Baldur's Gate is you you play them for five hours and then you realize, okay, I need to restart with my with the knowledge that I have now and recreate all my characters from the ground up to be optimized for this combat engine. You know, this is this is actually like the normal expected way you would interact with this lineage of game. Uh I just don't have the patience for that. <laughs> yeah. The guys who do ranged touch, um, Cameron Kunzelman and uh, Danny Ashinafi, yeah. like this is a great channel. It's a YouTube channel. Um, they played through all of the Baldur's Gate games and Disco Elysium as part of that uh-huh. because of the kind of like similar systems and similar perspectives and stuff. And um, I, I think they were not able to get through the games without um, without sort of hacking them. Like at some points they just become like kind of unplayable. And I I really respect that. Like you're so committed to the game that you get to the end game and you can't play it and you're like, well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do some research and like use outside game tools to get through this because <laughs> <laughs> like certainly no beta testers ever got here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
in any case, uh, I invite other lords to discuss uh, Disco Elysium at length. I want to hear. I want to hear more about this. Oh, you're, you're suggesting this becomes like a recurring topic on every episode from now on. I just, I just want people to bring it up. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder what the most recurring topic is. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna guess it's Big Mike Bananas. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but. There is a lot of video game stuff. There's a lot of video game stuff, yeah. Do we have an update on the Big Mike Bananas? Did you Have you revised your your uh, thinking on them recently? Uh, we recently revisited the Big Mike topic uh, on the, <laughs> on the episode that John Mystery was on. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, because, gosh, was it? I, I, no, I'm, no, I'm like, maybe I'm talking about a different friend now. I'm pretty sure it was him who, like, got a box of them for Christmas and tried them out. And like, <laughs> basically unless, and then this is my memory. So maybe I'm wrong about this, but my memory of this is that he agreed with me that like, they're basically the same as regular bananas. Okay. Well, this is a, this is one additional tick in the, in the big Mike bananas being a recurring topic. That's right. Of, of note. <laughs> Are we ready for another one? Sure. Yes. Uh, my topic is Clue 2, Murder in Disguise. So I watched a movie when I was a kid based on the board game Clue. And it was like campy goofballs doing campy goofball shit. Are you talking about the Tim Curry movie? No, as it turns out. But I thought it was. Okay. Wait a minute. There's two Clue movies? So hang on. Hang on. I'm getting, I gotta, <laughs> you, jump, you skip to the punchline. All right. All right. Uh, and then like I, I read on the internet like 10 years later about like this campy Clue movie that's a, that's a, a, a camp classic, you know, a cult classic. And I was like, guys, it's not that good. It's – I've seen this movie. It's kind of bullshit actually. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it turns out that the movie that I watched was – the VHS tape that came with the VCR board game, Clue 2 Murder in Disguise. Are you familiar with the VCR board game phenomenon? Oh. Yes. <laughs> these are, these are, you'd get these boxed games at the game shop and put in a VHS tape and you'd play the VHS tape and it would tell you how to play the game. And like the game would <laughs> rely on you watching th- clips from something or like you'd watch a piece of the video and then you would pause the tape and then you would interact with your your board game somehow based on what just happened on the screen in the case of the clue to murder in disguise game you're there are like something like 20 cases on the tape and they all they consist of like three or four scenes each and then there are um corresponding clue cards in a deck that you go through and you're, and you are like uh, the murderer of, of the, what or like one of the murderers is, was the person in this scene holding this weapon or whatever. And you have to remember that was the person holding that weapon in that scene. And then there are mechanics for like replaying parts of the video. So as a, as a comparison between uh, clue 1985 and clue Two murder in disguise, VHS pack in movie. <laughs> The IMDb page for Clue, the top cast has, uh, let me just, 17 people in it, one of whom does not have a picture for their IMDb profile or whatever. Clue 2 
has 11 people in the top cast, two of whom do have pictures. Yeah. Like, to be clear, Clue, the movie, is a real movie with real act, real comedic actors in it, uh, such as the guy whose name I can't forget who played uh, Chuck on Breaking Bad. <laughs> I have not I don't know seen who that is. <laughs> Breaking Bad. I have seen Clue. Uh, I don't remember very much about it other than that the recurring gag about the maid having big titties. Yeah. Uh, that uh-huh. was the part that, that really that really stuck in my mind. I think I watched this when I was maybe 14 or 15, maybe. Sure. Uh, Are we calling them titties now? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I, I think, think it, in the context of Clue 1985, I think it's appropriate. I, I think in, in this movie, they're definitely titties. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, noted. But it does apparently have Tim Curry in it. Yeah, whereas Clue 2 Murder in Disguise was made on a shoestring budget, shot on video with no-name actors, and yet, like, I, I re-watched, like, five minutes of Clue 2 Murder in Disguise, like, the the opening sequence of it, recently on YouTube. How? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I watched a Clue movie with my wife, and it's a kind of a toss-up which one I enjoyed more. So, like, huh. when you're dealing with camp, like... Better isn't always better. Yeah, I suppose. The idea of like having to like play and stop and play and stop a a VHS cassette in order to play a board game, which is like generally kind of a slow process to begin with, yeah. um, sounds like a giant drag. And I think I probably would have hated that as a kid, but I would be all about it now. Like I would <laughs> love to play it. Like have yeah. you have you have you been able to like recreate this and like play it as an adult or oh i never i've never played this game i just watched the tape you've never played it (laughs) because the tape is is like is itself (laughs) that must have made no sense right well yeah well it's it sort of tells a story but there are 20 cases right there are 20 yeah but they're 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 linked in such a way that like you the characters go from scene to scene and like it, it it kind of all adds up to into a, like a a semi narrative god i would love to to have been part of that and to figure out like where those clue and actors ended up right like yeah. like seeing one out in the wild somewhere would be <laughs> such a such a thing like i i don't know i um when i was living in tucson we went to this indian restaurant and um I was, I was out with my in-laws who like, they don't watch movies and they don't really watch TV. And John Lithgow was sitting behind (laughs) us with, with his wife. This is not a fancy Indian restaurant. And I like looked at him and then I sort of like looked away because I didn't want to like, I didn't want to draw attention to him. But like, it seemed like nobody else, uh, like recognized him. And, uh, like I told my in-laws who it was and they're like, yeah, we don't know who that is. And I'm like, oh, that's a shame. But it, it took like, it took all of the the like fortitude in my soul not to like pass him on the way out and say like I really appreciated your work in Daddy's Home too, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like it would just be like to find one of those like clue to uh, murder in disguise actors and be like oh my god you were my favorite actor in Clue Two I would totally yeah I would have one of them on the show. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I, I would imagine like John Lithgow is like sick of being talked to about 
cer- certain roles, but other roles. Yeah. Maybe dad. What was it? Daddy. What? Daddy's home. Daddy's too, home too. Which was like a perhaps daddy's home too. It was like a Christmas movie that I was like I was like forced to watch on the treadmill in the gym. You know, yeah. <laughs> they have like a big screen. It was one. It has Marky Mark in it. It's one of the worst movies of all time. <laughs> and like I just I really wanted to like congratulate him on that particular movie. All of Mark's Mark Wahlberg's work, I'm just going to start dismissing this. This movie has Marky Mark in it. <laughs> Even when it doesn't, just as a way of saying it's bad. <laughs> it may be that John Lithgow was like, oh, da- daddy's home too. I loved making that movie and then would like have a conversation with you about it. Like, and nobody ever talks to him about it. like I, I remember this anecdote of someone who was talking to Michael Land at CES or something, and Michael Land was a uh, the composer on uh, the, like a lot of Lucas Arts games, and he was also like one of the technical people behind the um, the iMuse music engine. Like you could tell by looking at this guy that like this guy is really tired, really tired of being fanboyed too, but. Uh, the the person who was telling the anecdote brought up the idea of iMuse and Michael just perked up like oh yeah and apparently this was this was the trigger for like if you want to have a conversation with Michael Land about his work you just have to bring up this one specific subset of the work <laughs> and not all the shit he's tired of talking about yeah i mean there's got to be like there's got to be a huge number like t- in total of these like fmv kind of actors out there no yeah and i i wonder if it's like even possible to to recognize them there's got to be somebody who like specializes in in like loving those like horrible fmv games and yeah i wonder like if any of those actors are like making the the con circuits oh you know who is in an fmv game me tim curry oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> oh Oh yeah. yeah. He's yeah. in the cutscenes of the Red Alert games, right? Yeah, he's uh he's going to escape to the one place that, <laughs> that was there's not no polluted by capitalism, yeah. The moon. Space. Yeah. <laughs> like halfway through the uh when we were watching the Clue movie, I had to bring up that clip, specifically that wow. one clip on YouTube and show it to my wife. It was like, yeah, this is the Tim Curry that I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe VCR games would be a good let's play niche if it doesn't exist already. Oh yeah. But uh, find finding them and and well, you know, running them, uh, getting a VCR going is not that hard. But is something I, I thought about when you were introducing this topic is that it's weird that these are all all VHS tapes because it it seems like the DVD makes this way easier to do technically. Yeah. Well, and and the, there were definitely DVD games in that era. There were, but you, you know, I encountered plenty of these VCR games as a kid or, or, you know, at thrift stores later or whatever, but I I don't think I've ever seen a DVD one except maybe trivia games. Hmm. So it seems like maybe like the DVD came too late to save this, this <laughs> style of, of board game. Yeah. I, I was definitely thinking of trivia games when I said there were definitely DVD, DVD games. So you may be right that that's the one. Yeah. But the DVD ones like, the, yeah, they're just, they're usually like some kind of weird trivial pursuit thing. It's not like a wizard talks to you and tells you where to put your piece on the board or whatever, right? That's all VCR stuff. I want more wizard wizards talking to me in my life. Yeah. Well you can you can put it in your thought cabinet and it will talk to you eventually. That's right. <laughs> but only in my head. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yes. For this topic we're doing the poem 
this is a situation where like one of the guests of a previous episode suggested this one and it ended up in the topic bucket and it just stayed there until someone picked it. And so I'm sorry that I'm doing your poem without you, whoever this was. <laughs> I try to be usually try to be a, a little bit better uh, topic hygiene. No, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Like to see your topic, like you know, grow up and and be its its own topic yeah. in the world. Like I'm sure that person is proud. <laughs> Growing apart from you. Uh, Let's do it. Let's do it with them. With the what's that? What's that word? Panache. Um, Panache, but also like judgment and like uh savoir faire. Yeah, okay. Let's, <laughs> let's go with that. Jesse, do you want to read it? I do. Oh, well, so this first first, this is uh all the words on a bottle of rolling rock beer in a different order. And I guess it's by Dimitri Dimitri Martin, or maybe Dimitri Martin just blogged about it. Unclear. Women, your ability to operate extra tender springs from birth. Good machinery comes as your contents cause enjoyment. Cash, beer, a car, rock and rolling? During it, the general warning. We may risk pregnancy according to old problems. Your refund from the government for alcoholic beverages? Not okay. Refund this premium beer, surgeon, because premium beer imparts taste. A drink to the tribute of health to the pale alcoholic. Rolling glass tanks of beverages rock this lined mountain. Should the defects of consumption drive me, or you? Latrobe, Latrobe, C-O-L-C-T-D-E-I-A-M-A-N-Y-V-T-C-A-M-I, 33. This is a good poem. Yeah, this rules. This is among my favorite poems. What do you like about it? Uh, I, I guess like what makes this kind of, of, of cut-up poem interesting is getting something or aligned together with a lot of impact out of pretty limited tools, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this, this toward the end, rolling glass tanks of beverages rock this lined mountain. That's <laughs> like, that's just a good line. Like, you know, <laughs> that's, you could find that in Beowulf or whatever, right? <laughs> the, the bit about, you know, that they've taken some Surgeon General's warning about how uh, drinking alcohol is bad for you and made it into something which is interesting. The the part at the end where it just lists the, a bunch of codes for different states is not as good, but you had to put <laughs> yeah. it somewhere, I guess. Yeah, had to go somewhere. They could have they could have punctuated every line, like one state for every line of the poem. Right. I'm sure they thought about that. Yeah. Maybe there was nothing better to do with it, but the first stanza, which is the sort of gender essentialist thing about w women having the appropriate machinery for causing enjoyment, I didn't. That wasn't my favorite part. Uh, your ability to operate extra tender springs from birth. Good machinery comes as your contents cause enjoyment. Yeah, I guess I guess that that is like a little off. That could have been rearranged into something. I I was kind of interested, like in the fact that like um, so much of this is about women. You know. Yeah, there's of of the four sort of four and a half stanzas. Two of them seem to be about women and pregnancy. <laughs> right, right, and I'm sure there's like a lot of text on the on the beer can that's like related to related to surgeon. Yeah, sur the, surgeon, the surgeon general's general warning: don't drink when you're pregnant. And, yeah, don't drive when you're <laughs> don't drive when you're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't drive when you're impaired. It turns into something that basically like is a little bit of a meditation on 
women, right? Because, like, there is no, like, warning specifically to men, like, unless this beer were specifically advertised to men, um, there wouldn't be any language calling them out. But because women have to be called out so many times, then the poem becomes about women in some ways. Oh, yeah. Right. The, yeah. the word man and men do not appear in the in the on the can so you just can't talk about them right or at least not not directly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah there's like um like when you're when you're talking generally and this has been going on forever like where the the sort of how do you address somebody who's anonymous um and for for ages and ages it was he and the like the unspoken audience was male and like I don't know if this is like the way that the Bible and the Quran are written or the way they get translated, but you know, it's it a lot of passages like speak to you as a reader and like your implied wife or your 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 role in society as, you know, and the the underlying thing there is as a man, right? Like as somebody who is able to read. Yeah. But like uh you know, this is this is one of the things. Beer cans are are meant to be read by both genders, and there's there's not like sort of like an implied sexism except for the advertising, right? Like, how do I how do I explain this a little bit better? Um, but the the audience is is still particularly male, and the the woman is like this still the exception, right? So it doesn't surprise me that the the way that this poem comes out has still like the woman is the exception or the woman is the um being sort of seen here and called out as like a a, a person who's there for enjoyment or something right like it's still it still reflects or, or this, to, like, to worry about pregnancy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it still reflects this like male uh culture i guess this bit in the long stanza a drink to the tribute of health to the pale alcoholic that's that's an interesting dark irony there uh, that reminds me a little bit of um, there's a song by the band Moxie Fruvis, uh, long defunct, oh, yeah. called the Drinking Song, uh, which yeah that that those two lines remind me a lot of that. Hmm. I don't remember that song, but I used to I used to really love Moxie Fruvis. Hmm. Uh, best known these days for. Um, having Gian Gomeshi in it, who is now a disgraced former CBC employee. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) No, it was, it was a big news story at the time. It it was, it was bad stuff. Uh, He may have gone to prison. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, that gives them some serious street cred. (laughs) Yeah. The the drinking song is on, I think their first album called uh, Bargainville. Yeah, they played on my college campus during finals week. They were like right outside my dorm. It was really fun. Oh, wow. This is before, you know, prison. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you remember how 50 Cent kept rapping about how, how many times he'd been shot? I, maybe you don't remember that. I don't remember that. It was a thing. <laughs> I, oh, he got shot though, right? <laughs> yeah. More than once. <laughs> oh, no. Uh and it's totally a thing to like talk about uh, going to jail, but I don't know that if anybody like anybody, God, somebody must have at least made this joke about like rappers rapping about going to jail for like, for like insider trading or something like that. I think that's very funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any kind of any white collar crime. 
I don't think he went to prison. He was acquitted once, and on a second charge, he assigned a peace bond. And there are sort of separate additional allegations about him which have not gone to trial. Ah, hmm. uh, all right. That's not as cool then. Maxifruvis no. <laughs> no longer has street cred. All, all the sexual assault, none of the prison. <laughs> That's the topic lord's guarantee. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Well, that's that's definitely reflected by this poem. Yes. <laughs> sure. Let's move on. Hi, Erica. Your topic is this year's Beast of a Mystery Hunt. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. What do I even say? Do you guys know what the MIT Mystery Hunt is? Yes, but explain yes. it to the listeners. Okay. All right. Um, so MIT is uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they have something called the Puzzle Club. The Puzzle Club is where people go and write puzzles and they solve puzzles. And at some point, like out of this world, or maybe because of this world, uh, there was launched a big puzzle hunt. And the goal of the puzzle hunt is to find a coin. So the first puzzle hunt was decades and decades ago, and it was written by one guy. And it was, uh, I don't even know if it had a coin, but it did have like beer. I think you could win some beer. So a puzzle hunt, to be clear, is like a series of interconnected puzzles that you solve as a, as a team, right? As a team. Yes. So So at the beginning of this, it was this guy and a group of his friends and... The puzzles were not interconnected. There was a math problem, and I think like there was some kind of uh, some kind of integral that had to be solved, and then there was uh, some kind of like crossword or something, and then something else, and then you could win the beer. But over time, this has become. So hang on, would would a, would a math problem still be considered a puzzle these days? If you if you had a graphic with it and you had like flavor text that indicated like why it was fun to solve it, then okay. I think it would pass. <laughs> right. <laughs> so over time, this has gotten like more and more involved, and now the puzzles uh, come in rounds. So people write rounds of puzzles, and the rounds have answers that can be combined into a meta answer. So now the puzzle hunts have narratives. There was a year where uh, we were in the pandemic and nobody could go to campus where they built like this three-dimensional model of MIT and you had to go scavenger hunt for the puzzles. And then uh, you had to bring your teammates in this virtual world to uh, go unlock the puzzles together in real time and stuff. And like, there were just incredible things, but usually they're on campus, they're in person. And now we have something like five or 6,000 people in like 300 teams uh, solving, uh, solving the mystery hunt puzzles. So it always happens on Martin Luther King Day weekend. And uh, the winning team writes the, uh, writes the hunt for the next year. And recently there's been like a, an even more in-depth uh, fold to this, which is that not all teams are, are very big or they're not very... Um, they're not very experienced. So the first part of the hunt will be like a miniature hunt that a smaller team can get through completely. And then they win some prize, like a pin or something. And then the bigger teams can like crank away at the, the long puzzles or the very complicated puzzles or the ones that require a lot of coding and stuff like that. But it usually wraps up around 
Saturday night, Sunday afternoon, and then there's a wrap-up on Monday to talk about which team won and some of the highlights of the hunt. You know, like, uh, people will send in videos for scavenger hunt things that they'll show that, or, like, some of the in-person puzzles they'll they'll highlight. And, and the puzzles are really just fascinating and fun, and they kind of give you a new perspective on what people can do when they come together with, like, um, interesting ideas. Uh, but this year we had uh, a new team that won called Teammate, and they were young, and they wrote a beautiful uh, puzzle hunt that was too long. And I am still having nightmares every night that we are still solving the mystery hunt. Really, every you're, night this is, I would, this is like something you're you're that you have nightmares about. Like you didn't enjoy it. It is. Uh, I I I feel like many people didn't enjoy this hunt. The mini hunt for people wrapped up on Saturday evening. And we were like, uh oh, <laughs> is that the mini hunt? And then they ran, they got into like um, an understanding that their hunt would not be solved on time. So they started allowing teams to cash in like vouchers for, for whole answers. So you might have been working on a puzzle with your teammates for like six hours. And then, like, just before you're about to crack it, like, your team manager decides, like, you have to basically move forward on that one and they cash in the answer. So you don't get the the fun of, like, solving uh, the actual mystery hunt or the actual puzzle that you're working on. So that was that was the rest of the time. And, like, last year we came in 10 minutes behind the leading team. And this year we came in... 25 minutes behind the leading team and dodged dodged a bullet yeah and every year it's like oh god we dodged a bullet but this this year was so people were awake for like three days in a row working on puzzles and the puzzles each were like 10 hours long they were they were so scoped so long and so grindy and it's hard to talk about this because this is like the the fun thing that everybody looks forward to every year and the puzzles were good and they were well designed. And like, if they had been shorter, everybody would have really loved this hunt. Yeah. But like it, it kind of like flopped and there are a lot of like really angry blog posts about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the thing about having the winner of a con of the, of the contest design the next year's contest is that like, Solving puzzles and making puzzles are two very different skills. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially like I would expect a, a first time team. You said this was a new team. Yeah. Like I would expect like the year they won was probably not the first year they were doing the mystery hunt. No, no. And we, we thought we thought that they had like absorbed all of the all of the kind of culture of the mystery hunt, right? Like the puzzles in order to be fun. They basically, like, you have to have, like, an aha moment. Like, oh, I understand what this puzzle is about. Yeah. And then something about the solving should give you a little bit of feedback that you're, like, on the right track. And sometimes, like, that's even, like, way that you order things spells out, like, a first answer. And then you're like, okay, I have the right ordering. Now I can go ahead and solve the rest of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, but even if you know that, like... If it's your first time constructing, <laughs> if it's your first time constructing a hunt, like you're 
going to fuck it up. It's a lot of pressure and and if, uh, like I I would I would totally expect like uh an inexperienced uh puzzle constructor to do badly at this. But on the other hand like how else are you going to get the experience of making a puzzle hunt of this scope than to just do it? I know, but it's like it's it's like the people who do the mystery hunt are like they're not just doing the mystery hunt. Like we do puzzle hunts all year long. We practice with our team. We practice with other people. This is why the Frog Fractions 2 ARG was fun. It was because like I knew what made a good puzzle. And Justin Melvin, who like designed a lot of the puzzles, he's also he's also in the National Puzzling Week. Like what makes a puzzle fun? What's what's like aimed at the level of the audience? Yeah. And like when we wrote our first hunt, like as as uh, Death and Mayhem, like our MIT mystery hunt team, like it was one of the most successful hunts ever, if not the most. And like I take no credit for that at all because I wrote one puzzle. Like our but our team managers were like on top of things, and they had been waiting for years and writing puzzles and getting feedback from people and just waiting for this moment when we could just launch like 200 puzzles into the stratosphere. (laughs) The puzzles themselves were waiting for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is like, this is, I can't even tell you like the level of passion and work that go into these things. These puzzles are like tiny little gifts that open up and dance in front of you. Like they're all so incredible. Like, We had a puzzle where all of the teams got mailed something. Um, and so like, we said, like, please bring this to, to the hunt with you. The people who had the thing, it was some kind of chip. They were invited to like come to like a, um, a dance hall that was totally dark. Like, I don't know how it happened, right? But there were like a hundred people in the room. And at some point, people understood that their chip was controlling a single light point on the wall and that they had to organize themselves into a shape to make the logo of that year's hunt based on the shape and the color of their chips, <laughs> you know, with the projection on the on the wall. And like that was something that it was a collaborative puzzle that required coding and technology, but also like the solvers had to come together and make the recognition that like they could control a single point of light on the wall. And that meant that they were in control of finding out what the solution was and organically coming together to make it. There were no instructions, right? And like all of the puzzles are these like beautiful little like chocolates, you know, just something to, to savor and enjoy. And like, even if you didn't get to see it, like you can go back and you can solve it later and you can have like all of that fun that somebody put into the, the designing of that puzzle. Yeah. And it, it's just so delightful. And this was like Ludo narr- narrative dissonance where like, you know, you've been waiting all year to solve these puzzles. You've been waiting all year for this chocolate box. And it's like, it's like, like a marathon through death Valley. Like, <laughs> <laughs> At the end of it, like, all you have is memories of fighting with your teammates and, like, endless nightmares about still being in the mystery. <laughs> is, is there, if I understand it, this, this sort of event runs on almost no explicit rules and and sort of operates on a thin layer of tradition or something. So it, it seems like you don't have a, a lot of, like, 
recourse when this happens, right? You can say like, you you know, you can't say that this team did it wrong, right? You can only say that you don't like the way they did it or something, right? That's right. That's right. So so you sort of like, you just have to, I mean, either change your traditions or else accept that this is going to happen sometimes or something. Like, I don't really know what you would change or what you would do, right? You can design puzzles that this team is going to be bad at solving. (laughs) Make sure they never win again. That's it. Thank you, Jim. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go into my other Discord and uh, and suggest that right now. And I think that's gonna make everybody smile. <laughs> <laughs> you could, I guess, just like start a whisper network. Like, just you know, just talk a lot about how bad that year was, or something. And then that will like eventually <laughs> coalesce into a tradition of like, oh, don't do it like they did that one year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like there is real anger on the internet. And so like, you know, of course, you don't, you don't want to be angry, but it, it is like a huge, it is a huge time investment, and a huge energy investment. So I, I think that the team knows. And, I don't, um, yeah, I don't know how you could be angry about something like this. Like, it would be like getting angry at a student driver for crashing the car. Like, of course, they crashed the fucking car. You were talking about uh, that, like huge crossword that you were doing. Yeah. Um, like that huge crossword. Yeah. Um, what what would happen? How would you feel if now that you've been working on it for, you know, a month or two months or something, they issued like an apology and said, like, we're sorry, but like, it's not solvable. And we don't <laughs> want to tell you why, because that would like spoil something about the puzzle. Hmm. You know, like, how would you feel about it? It's just like you've been doing this for fun. It's a huge time investment. They didn't check. (laughs) They didn't run it past their beta testers. Yeah. And that's actually, that's probably part of the skill set of making something this big is like, you're not going to get a team of beta testers to run like a, of of like a hundred people to run through this puzzle in a weekend. Oh. Yeah, but but you but that's what you do. You go on do you, you go really? on retreats. Yeah, it's like a whole year to set up to do the puzzle hunt. So you like you have the the team managers basically come up with the the structure around the narrative which people vote on and uh, set you know like a, a bunch of meta puzzles up and then they they solicit puzzles from people and there's a system. Like there's a whole software system that our team managers built so that some people can have access to the puzzles and then they get edited by editors and then they get checked out by uh, uh, naive beta testers. And if they have feedback, then it goes back into development. New naive beta testers go through it. And if they're able to solve it, then it goes through a second naive beta tester test. And then you have a time that uh, the puzzle has been uh, needs to be solved in. So you have some kind of idea of how many man hours it's going to take. Yeah. It's a huge com- complex. And this is, thing that's that what I was getting at was like, there's got to be a process yeah. for this. That, yeah. Yeah. That like, so it, it's, it's one thing to understand the process and maybe they didn't even know about a process. Maybe they didn't. It sounds like, honestly, if the, each, each individual puzzle was running along, it sounds like they just didn't test. That's right. And that's what we think happened. Uh, but also testing well, even if you know the process that you just described, is also a skill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think Jesse is right. 
which is that like if we don't have a rule book, this shit's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would definitely blame the I, like mo- far more than I would blame this team. I would blame the idea that like the winner of the hunt writes the next hunt. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> so what do we do? So like well, usually this is like this is not a problem because like Sea Tech Astronomy wins it almost every year and then writes it. Yeah. Uh, so like it's just you know they write excellent hunts and they're like excellent solvers. They're a small team and they uh, they just blow everybody else out of the water and um, and we love it when they win and we love it when they write the puzzle hunt. So yeah, I <laughs> so, mean it sounds like yeah, it sounds like the solution is for these astronomers to get good. <laughs> I don't think any of them are actually astronomers, but they might be. Sea Tech Astronomy was the um, was the like secret the, the Scrabble combination in yeah, yeah in in sneakers in, um, sneakers yeah. Uh, I I also thought it was like a a group of astronomers though, and I was really impressed for a long time that like this society of astronomers was coming together to solve puzzles, but it's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> Like I, th- I think it would be worth considering. Like, t- tell Tech Astronomy, all you guys, quit your jobs. Like, you're, this is now your job. We're paying you. Like, there is a now there is a mystery hunt foundation. It's soli- <laughs> like there's an entry fee that everybody pays, and it goes to paying the salaries of the puzzle constructors. And it's always this one team because we know they do a great job. Yeah, there have been there have been like cultural rifts that people don't want to talk about. Um, and uh, I don't think that's ever happened to Sea Tech Astronomy, but uh, you get you get uh, teams kind of exploding and ending up on other teams and stuff like that. So there is this like whole uh, kind of like cross pollination of like puzzle designers and puzzle solvers and stuff. Um, so uh, I don't know that that would work to sort of bind, like soul bind them to the mystery. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, it's, not, not. it's not it's not not an actively bad idea. <laughs> it's also conceivable that some of them might not want to become professional puzzle constructors or would not do it for the amount of money you're able to marshal. Well, right now they're doing it for free, so. Yeah. They're, they're doing it on top of their, like, math professor jobs and stuff. Yeah, but but you're right in that, like, it, it, it's psychologically a very different thing to do something for free versus doing it for a pittance. Yeah, absolutely. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yes. Uh, Jesse, your topic is shareable alarms. Listeners to this program might be aware that the Topic Lords Discord has a channel where uh, lords and, and fans of Topic Lords discuss their dreams. Uh, and I also feel uh, I often feel pretty left out of this discussion because my dreams, uh, I rarely remember them. And when I do, they're, they're sort of they're nonsense, like they don't they don't have a narrative and they're sort of just vague collections of impressions and sort of mishmashes of people I used to know and these sort of things. Uh, but one, one idea I had in a dream that I, that I remembered when I was awake and that technically makes sense is shareable alarms. So you know how, um, on your, on your telephone, you, you put a thing so that it makes a noise at seven in the morning to get you up. Um, mm-hmm. or, or perhaps you, you set a timer because your, um, washing machine is going to be finished. So what what that app tends not to have in my experience is a button where you can share this to all your favorite social media sites to tell your friends and family <laughs> about the alarms that you have so that, you know, that 
they could adopt those alarms or, or, you know, send you a little message when your alarm goes off being like, good job with the washing machine. Uh, so that's my idea. It's called shareable alarms. I actively want this. Is there, I, is I there act- a website yeah. where we can go do this right now? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I believe in the Butlerian Jihad, so you're going to have to do it. I won't touch a computer. <laughs> Not even to use the shareable alarms? <laughs> no, I don't believe in them. Jim, you got that Pico 8. This is on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I, um, I had like a little Casio watch, and at some point I set an alarm for like one o'clock or one twenty or something, um, and I don't remember why. And uh, then the strap broke, and then the piece of string I had threaded through where the strap was that broke too. And then it was just buried somewhere. But every day at like one o'clock, it would go off. Oh no! The alarm would would go off, and you could never find it. Yeah, I wasn't really looking for it, but I also like never had it in my head at like twelve fifty eight. Like, oh, go, go look, go look at that. This (laughs) is like when you lose your wedding ring, but your wedding ring also like screams once a day. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, oh, my wedding ring is screaming. I know it's nearby, but I can't find it. So this this made it through like multiple moves with us also (laughs) (laughs) in different houses and like um, screaming wedding ring is following me around. (laughs) My friend Chloe, uh, I was explaining to her that there was this alarm, you know, because she was staying with us and like you know I wasn't actively looking for it, but uh, I was kind of annoyed by it. And she's like, oh, you could just use it to your advantage, like you know. One one o'clock, it's time for pants or something like that. And then for for years until the battery ran out, one o'clock was like time for pants. And we would, David and I would just say it to each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, I kind of miss it now because like the watch still exists somewhere, but the battery is dead uh, and it doesn't go off anymore. But so, you know, I'd just be in my pajamas all day because I don't have that like... I don't have that feeling of like, oh, it's time for pants. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. And, and none of your friends, like, you know, you know, if you had a shareable alarm set. I know. It was automatically sharing itself every day. Your, all your friends and family would have noticed, oh, no, the pants alarm stopped. <laughs> I know. I know. Somebody would have, like, come to the rescue with, like, a, you know, they would have sent me, like, a preset Casio watch. <laughs> <laughs> so I could share it to the internet. <laughs> People could follow me on sharablealarms.net.org and, uh, you know, we could all remember that it's time for pants together in, like, whatever time zone you're in. So there's a, a, I guess it's an app for the PlayStation Vita. So nobody has this anymore. But there was once, for the PlayStation Vita, an app called Wake Up Club. Oh, they fucking jacked my shit. This is the same thing, isn't it? It's similar. (laughs) No, it's not the same thing, but it's similar. It doesn't have a pants alarm. You'll set an alarm for a time to wake up. And then when the alarm goes off, uh, you will be connected with 12 other people who have also set that al- that time for their alarm. And you will play a mini game together to see who can wake up faster. Oh, my God. Huh. I guess this is to like prevent, like to give you a gamified way of not going back to bed after your alarm is turned off. Uh, yeah, yeah, or or to like, I I guess make you more alert when you wake up because you're competing with somebody. Uh, according to this, players can earn in-game achievements or trophies for getting out of bed. <laughs> wow, 
I kind of love this idea. I think I would just immediately go back to sleep after the game, but I I like... You'd be too amped. (laughs) I mean, you have to make it putting on pants instead of just being awake, right? Mm-hmm. You can get their pants on fastest. Because I mean, if you're upright and wearing <laughs> pants, like you're up. Who can get to work and finish their workday fastest? <laughs> this, this app is like the opposite of sex. Like who can get their pants on fastest? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. Does that does that mean that sex is about getting your pants on the slowest? Hmm. I think I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> Taking your pants on and off as fast as you can. Uh. Now I'm blushing. <laughs> finally. <laughs> we finally did it, Lords. Uh, and that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, Erica, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, God. I'm still on Twitter. At Yarek TRB. Really? For, for God knows what reason. Like, I just... I was I left Twitter and then I realized that Twitter actually brings me joy sometimes and I went back. So if you're if you're a person on Twitter uh, and you're not angry, uh, give me a follow. <laughs> All right, uh, and Jesse, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I can be found in a number of places on the internet, but perhaps the most interesting one is the Discord-based reading group for. Uh, Smolian's book, To Mock a Mockingbird, that I run. You can get uh, the invite to that by DMing me on uh, the Topic Lords Discord, which you should be on because you obviously subscribe to the Patreon of this fine show. (laughs) If you are a coward, then don't join us there. But if you are interested in learning about birds and why the set of girdle numbers of all true sentences is not computable, then you should come hang out. Neat. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you, Jim. This was highly enjoyable. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!